Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham and Bose, helping you stay connected. Talking of staying connected, it's been great to correspond with loads of you about the last couple of podcasts. Thank you for your feedback on them and thank you for your suggestions for future guests. And as I've said before, you keep those coming in and you could be walking away with some Bose goodies. All you have to do is tag your mates in on Instagram. Tell us who you want to hear from on In The Pink and add the hashtag Bose. Okay, next up on In The Pink is a man I know really well. In fact, I've known him for almost a decade. And he is my colleague at Sky F1 and before that was at Five Live. I'm talking about Anthony Davidson. And Ant is such a popular member of the team. Everyone loves him. He's a very happy, positive influence within our team. And he's so easy to talk to. So the next, what, hour or so just flew by because we were chatting about his career. There's actually loads of things I didn't know. Uh, Much to my shame, actually, given how long I've known him. But he tells me some really interesting things about his life in Formula One. I hope you enjoy it. Here he is, Anthony Davidson on In The Pink. Now, Anthony, I find this really quite fun because we are actually only two floors apart in the same hotel. But because of COVID restrictions here in Abu Dhabi, we are separated and speaking over Zoom instead. It's bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's really weird, this new life that we lead. It's so bizarre, just uh, trapped in our rooms, just arrived here in Abu Dhabi, um, all had our COVID tests at the airport. You hear these stories of uh, other countries, how they go about uh, COVID and the restrictions and things and what they have in place. But until you witness it yourself, you, you find it hard to, hard to picture. And then I was just on the phone to my wife as I got into the room and I was explaining the story and she went, well, I've just been down M&S and uh, just old ladies bumping into me, no one wearing masks. And you're thinking, oh, we just, we're just not in this. We just don't get this at all. <laughs> no, I know. You know what, Different world. In some ways it's heartening that they're going to these lengths. In other ways, as you say, it's really disconcerting because you feel uh, it's quite stressful. But anyway, listen, we're not going to talk about COVID because we do that every single day anyway. We're going to talk about you. And I have to say... I do find it quite strange talking to a friend, and we have been friends for sort of nine years now, um, yeah. which is um, but there's always that kind of assumed knowledge. 
So what I've got to try and remember to do is remind people and ask you questions about yourself that you'll go, well, you already know that, you Muppet, but um, <laughs> people may not. And uh, anyone who doesn't know, Ant and I first met when we worked on uh, the BBC Five Lives coverage of Formula One. And it's you, me and Crofty. And then, of course, part of the TV team at the BBC is Ted Kravitz and Martin Brundle. So when we did all eventually come across to Sky, it was quite cool, wasn't it? Because we were together and there was sort of safety in numbers and we got confidence from the fact that we already had pals within the team and that we were we were joining the Sky team en masse. Yeah, no, it was nice. I mean, you know, you, you've grown up being trained in media and, and you know, I racing drivers aren't, so it's a different world anyway. When I... Training, by the way, just so anybody knows, there was no training. All right, well, you've done it longer than I had when we first met, yeah? You must have done. A little, yeah, a little bit, yeah, but hang on a minute. You went back to, what, 2006 when you had your first broadcasting debut at ITV? Yeah, well, I mean, it was more, yeah, it was commentating. It's, it's a little bit different, I suppose, than kind of the whole presenting and yeah. and, and, and being on camera, because that was just, again, that was, I say, just radio. Um, so, yeah, that's where we met um and Crofty like I say Crofty and Ted and and I really enjoyed the radio stuff um you know I've, I've never been one to want to be on camera at all um I remember hearing it might have actually been who was it I can't remember now someone in racing that said you know people on tv like the idea of being on tv and I'd never have I, I, I just thought that's a weird thing to say what weird thing because I never have um and radio really, uh, you know, I got into that and the commentary on practice sessions in conjunction with driving. Um, I found it really easy and I liked talking about my experiences on the track and um, you know, our producer that ran the show, um, Jason Swales, who's now at um, F1, uh, working on, on the TV side there. Um, yeah, he, he first wanted me to come into the commentary box because of my, to share my experiences on the track and, and it, that's where it stemmed from, really. So no, there was no intention ever to get into any of this, and you know, not to be on TV at all. That wasn't my dream. It was just, it was just something extra to do when I was at the track, because um, I would drive on the Friday practice sessions and then sit around as reserve driver on the Saturday, Sunday, or actually go home usually on the Saturday after qualifying, uh, when it was your last chance to to get into the car. So. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed the commentary stuff and that was all it was, just commentary. There's no analysis, nothing like that. And um, this small team that you became part of in the end, it clicked and gelled really well. And, um, and, and then it led on to obviously bigger, not necessarily always better things, but certainly bigger things, yeah. I've always wondered though, when you stand in the commentary box, particularly if you've just jumped out of the car, there must be a big part of you that's itching to get back into the car. How difficult is it as a racer? You know, that's part of your DNA to actually have to analyse and talk about someone else's driving and not be out there yourself. Yeah, that was, that was, that was hard. And um, I think the hardest thing was not bearing grudges against other drivers that you might have had a, a few issues with on circuit and then you're suddenly in the commentary box and... Uh, and you'd have to be totally unbiased. Um, but it, it doesn't always, certainly in the early days, it didn't always 
Uh, I didn't play it that well. Um, I tried, but it's yeah, you're 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 young and you're competitive, and uh, you know you you want desperately to be on the grid yourself, and you're watching these guys uh, that you were out on track with just the day before, and uh, now you're talking about them. So yeah, I certainly enjoyed talking about my own experiences more than than the others out there. But I could see the I could see the uh, not the pleasure, but the it's like the, the the information that I was able to give uh, people around me and people listening was uh, it's never it's never any more detailed than someone that's actually been out there uh, and having done it like I say literally the day before. Yeah, I mean you can offer even now um, with your sim work with Mercedes, you can offer a unique perspective that we just simply can't have if we've never sat in a Formula One car. So you know, that's worth its weight in gold. But I mean, as you say, and, and you can sometimes hear it, not from you necessarily, but from any commentators, you know, little jives, little digs going. <laughs> There's some drivers out there, they're like, oh, they don't really deserve to be there in the same way. <laughs> yes, go. another spin for so-and-so. Yeah. <laughs> By the end of the, listen, I actually think we should be drinking some alcohol because then you might loosen up a bit and just name names. <laughs> <laughs> Never. You know me. What are you talking about? You'll be pissed on half a fine. Um, <laughs> never drink with Ant. Well, actually, no, do drink with Ant because he's a cheap date. It's nice. It's good. <laughs> yeah, really cheap. I have, I have to say as well, though, that, that you always get out early from team socials. And I always think I either go with Ant now or I sink with the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. Guy dinner, I go, now that is the sensible option. Leave with Ant and PDR right now. You'll get an early night. You won't have a hangover tomorrow. But you stay and you're in big trouble. Exactly. Um, I think you're trying to say in a polite way that I'm your handbrake. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that I'm boring. <laughs> so good luck trying to get anything out of me now. <laughs> okay, let's cast our minds back then uh, to sort of where it all began for you. Why do you think um, you were sort of so passionate about racing? And, and obviously you are the perfect build um, to be a racer. Um, you're clearly very quick. You've got all the talent. Um, but why was it that you wanted to get into this? And when did you think it would actually be a viable career option for you? Well, two very different questions i reckon um so first of all as a eight-year-old kid well on my eighth birthday in fact uh my dad got me and my elder brother um well it was my birthday present to have a go in a in a go-kart um and my elder brother came along as well and uh so we both had a go and he's um i think my dad was always into motorsport i think you know his uh his brother, so my uncle was uh, got him into it, and um, so they they grew up together watching Formula One. But it was much harder, obviously, back then to, you know, get into racing themselves. And so I think when us kids came along, it was a quite a cheap way for my dad, in a weird way, to go racing himself, albeit through his kids. Um, so I was happily playing football like most young boys of that age or and girls and um so I was quite happy out on the football on the football pitch and 
I was already winning trophies there. And actually my first ever trophy was a football trophy, not, not a karting trophy. And um, so I, and I loved football. I used to play left back. I'm left footed. So uh, yeah, yeah. Don't put you down. What you say, lefties are very useful in sport. My son's a lefty. Oh, what could have been, eh? What could have been? <laughs> yeah. well, I don't think you were really to be a left back, if I'm honest. You don't think what? I don't think you're built to be a left back. I always think of left backs as being a bit more sort of solid and, you know, taller, maybe. Okay. Well, I, I was feisty. Oh, I was yeah. definitely made, that made up for the lack of height. Of that, I have no doubt. I bet you were. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. No, I so I was putting left back, and um, maybe I just wasn't very accurate. I was just going for the sliding tackles, and so I don't know. But anyway, so I loved football, and yeah, um, yeah and, and and still love playing it today. But uh, yeah, I, I never it never went any, any further. As soon as I was into karting, um, it just yeah, you, you realise you're good at something. My dad really enjoyed it. And we did it, uh, yeah, me and my brother um, together, albeit he was in a, a different um, class. He'd been nearly three years older than me. He was, he was, uh, he was in a, always a higher category. Um, and then, yeah, he, he actually had a pretty nasty crash at one point and broke his ankle and uh, then became my mechanic. He kind of lost the love for driving. And, and so my older brother was my mechanic, my dad, and we just kind of like effective team manager and would run the carts as well. And we just did it like that. Two brothers and my dad just going around and we got better and better and met certain drivers along the way, like Daniel Weldon and Jensen Button, Justin Wilson, to name but a few. And, um, you know, they, they, it was my life for, for those early years doing go-karting. And um, yeah, we just, it just went from strength to strength, got better and better and started winning championships. And um, I think, but it was only around 14 years old that I realized this is what I want to do for my livelihood now, for the rest of my life, I want to. Well, that's pretty young. Most 14 year olds haven't got a clue. Some 34 year olds. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, and and so like when we were when we were in school and we were going through, um, you know, towards GCSEs and well, actually probably past GCSEs, um, when I got my handful of terrible results, um, <laughs> you know, the, you know, the chat went, oh yeah, I was useless at school. Um, not that I wasn't there, I just I don't know why, I just academically not not brilliant, so. You're really clever. I feel like you've got a real analytical brain. Like you just yeah, it's funny because I, I applying that at school. I don't know whether it's just yeah, applying not applying myself or just getting phased by reading questions on an exam paper and not being able to put it into words. I'm, I've always had a much more of a photographic memory and than uh, you know being clever with words, writing down and that's never really been my strength and maths was a quite a poor poor subject for me so anyway I got my results and they were hang on a minute this is a man who can speak continuously for hours in commentary and analyze the most difficult technical things (laughs) crucially simplify something incredibly difficult to put it into layman's terms which is an incredible talent maybe this has just come later to you in life maybe at school maybe yeah 
time. Yeah, maybe maybe if I if I were to do it again today and without that obviously massive distraction of racing, which you know what kids are like being a mum yourself and you'll see it as your kids grow up more and more that how encapsulated you get, how engrossed in one single topic that children can become. And I guess, you know, starting something from eight years old, um, you know, it just felt like I went through the motions of school. I tried, but I definitely gave much more attention to racing. And, you know, I, I would, it's funny now looking back at my old uh, rough books and things that I had at school and they were just full of motor racing content and so like helmet designs, circuit designs, drawing cars. It is foot. It's like a an archive of of motor racing memorabilia from the, that had come from my imagination of what I'd seen and uh, yeah, either on TV. Like I was hooked on TV watching the likes of Mansell, Senna, Prost, PK. It, yeah it, it's funny to see because my my dad's a bit of a hoarder and he collected all my yeah he hoarded all my old uh, books and things from school and it's honestly it's a bit creepy when you see it because you see somebody's obsession in front of your eyes and um you know I, I told my teacher at school for example when I was I think nine or ten that I wanted to be that I wanted to be a Formula One driver it's, that's that's what I wanted to do and I've drawing all the time with like Senna and his McLaren and <laughs> I should have been doing work but yeah it's it's just full of that stuff so how proud um, are you now when you realize that you have followed that path with utter commitment determination and you've you've succeeded you've done what you said you wanted to do yeah I mean it's funny and, and it's, it brings me back to what I was going to in a long-winded way what I was going to say is that when we got the results and you go through that time in school when you're a teenager and you have the chat where you teach about job prospects, career opportunities and things like that, what you want to be, what really turns you on in terms of application at work and things for the future and what you'd like to get into. It, it, was, it was such an easy question for me to answer. It, well, I want to be a racing driver. That's all I want to do. And I would look at everyone around me in amusement because they didn't know what they wanted to do. Some of them had an idea. Oh, yeah, an accountant or, yeah, I might be a lawyer. Yeah, kind of like cooking, maybe home economics or something. I don't know. Yeah, and, and, and for me, it's just like, well, driver, what a, what a dumb question. It's just it's a no-brainer, no? <laughs> and the answer you'd always get is, no, 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 no. What, what would you want to do? You know, it's a proper job, like, that's just a hobby, a proper job. I said, no, it is a proper job. That's, if I can make it work, it's going to be, it's going to be a proper job. And uh, for me, yeah, I just had no interest in thinking outside of that tunnel vision that I had. Um, and, and so it's around 14, 15 years old that I knew that's definitely what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Do you remember when you got your very first paycheck sponsorship whatever it was when you first had that even the smallest amount of money so that you could actually legitimately call it a job <laughs> um i guess it was well it was more of a it was prize it was prize money i get was the first money that came in that was in my karting days um what are we talking 
I would have only been a couple of hundred pounds, but you know, right. to win a to win a race, yeah, a couple of hundred pounds. A lot for a kid, if that. Yeah, and um, you know, obviously, most of it or all of it went to my dad, who was running the thing anyway. But um, and and that's kind of how it was the early days. It's it's a bit of a bit of a blur. But then in the end of by the end of karting, I was a professional, which was quite rare because uh, I stayed in in, in go-karts until I was 19, 20 years old. And then I was on 10,000 pounds a year um, with everything paid for to uh, to race around the world for this small kart factory in, in Italy. Um, so that was my first kind of, not salary, but, you know, proper, yeah, when it, when it became much more than just a hobby, that's for sure. The world continues to evolve and the new norm isn't fully clear yet. But what does remain constant is the core message from our friends at Bose. Stay calm, stay centred and stay connected. Communication is key in everything we do and goes a long way to nurturing both ourselves and our relationships with others. So continue to talk about what matters to you. And don't be afraid to block out unhelpful noise or indeed to embrace silence because doing both can be great. Some of the ways we work will have changed forever. Embrace that. Make those new ways work for you. Shape the new norm to suit you. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. So let's fast forward to your time with uh, Trevor Carlin. We talked about that actually on the coverage at the weekend uh, just reminisce for a minute about those days. Well, yeah, so after karting, um, well, the, the biggest transition a driver ever makes is going from carts into cars. Yeah. And that's still the case today. To do it is huge money. It's even more money today than ever before. And I think that that division, that void is growing more and more um, between kind of like the haves and the have-nots. And, and I came from a very modest background we didn't have much cash although you know to do karting in the first place instead of football is a it's a huge outlay and and so you know you you you're more than a a working class family that's for sure because you know unfortunately for those for those families you know these karting is just not and never has been on the cards it's just it's that you can't afford it um, and unfortunately it's gone now from it's like a working class family not being able to afford it to pretty much a middle class family not being able to afford it. Um, That's fundamentally wrong, isn't it? it? It's a huge issue. I, I feel it's a huge issue. Um, it's what's wrong with the sport that I love. Um, you know, just put it this way, I, I can't, well, I, I would, it would, it would be a big old emotional roller coaster ride for me to try and get my kids into karting with a view to get them to Formula One. And I, I sat down and worked it out um, the other day with with a few few of the engineers at Mercedes. Actually, I said, right, if you want to sit down now with a plan to get your offspring into Formula One, you fund it all by yourself. What's it going to cost? And it worked out to be in excess of five million pounds just to get knocking on the door to Formula One, to be able to say, 
like when Max Verstappen was in Formula Three to say, right, we're ready to get you up or you know, to get you to that stage uh, to be an, an F2 driver. It's like Mick Schumacher today. If you wanted to fund that from start to where Mick Schumacher is today and you funded it all by yourself, that's five and a half million pounds. And that's, that's, uh, that, that's skimping a bit as well. I mean, that begs the question as to how many young boys and girls that we're missing out on in terms of talent. But I guess it's also one of those sports where talent alone has never been enough. You've got to get the track time in, you've got to get experience and you only get that with the money. So actually it's not as if we're seeing a supremely talented footballer just squander all that talent because you know it's, it's only with money that you can really see that talent properly flourish. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, most of the time... Big injustice there. It is. And, and thankfully with our sport that a lot of the time somebody from a, an underfunded family will, will be able to be spotted by uh, either a manager like I was uh, in, in karting who would invest basically in you. So there are two different types of manager out there. One that will pay for you to go through the, the the steps of the lower categories with a view to to take a percentage of your future earnings um, and then you've got the drive managers that will look for a rich kid a rich family and help them but will get paid to do that job so there's two very different managers and, and, and I obviously couldn't afford to have that latter uh, luxury so um and i was super lucky in in finding um finding a, an investor investor that would uh pay for my junior categories of, of race so formula ford uh including all the tests and uh and and and, and spares that would come along and, and consumables like tires and fuel and all those kind of costs and formula three as well and and with a view to do it to fast track it, to do one year in each category, Formula Ford, then Formula Three, and um, Formula Three back then was just over a million pounds uh, with Carlin, um, which it's more today, I'm sure. I don't know the actual cost, but it's, it's, it's more than that. And Formula Ford was a couple of hundred thousand, um, I think in the region of four or 500,000 pounds. Um, so you can see how it quickly adds up. Yeah. And, and I, I signed a long, a long-term deal with him, and uh, and once I started earning money, I, I paid it all back. So that was that was the deal, and and once I started, once I got into F1 as a test driver and started earning decent money, then it was uh, you know there was a certain percentage every year that would go back to my my manager that put that faith in me from all those years ago in, in karting. Really, it's like a student loan. It, yeah exactly it is like exactly like a student loan, a massive student loan but yeah it's it's a bigger scale but it's um that's that's my story that's how I uh, got into that's how I got into Formula One because I never forget um my husband Wiggy starting a new job after he'd graduated and actually it wasn't that it was quite a t long time after he graduated we were already dating and he got his pay slip his first big pay slip from his new job 
And it said deduction for student loan. And he was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Was taken away. And he was like left with nothing. Just about enough to buy us both a beer. Um, The funny thing is, though, at that that time, though, Nats, the funny thing is that you you just don't care about the money. Is you you're so blinkered, so determined yeah. to get to Formula One. You will do anything, yeah. and the money is just a byproduct. Uh, you know whether it's for good or bad. It's you, you're not really interested. Well, I certainly wasn't interested anyway. Um, in in the early days of of, of the money, and you know, I was I had only just moved out of home, and and I was 21 years old living in a actually he bought a house for me as well uh up in Brackley <laughs> again as an investment it was his yeah. house um I didn't have to pay him to to live there um just for the the, the costs um and uh, actually I ended up buying the house off of him as well in the end so it's another thing that you know it, it was super he was such a nice guy um really well I really fell on my feet there but that's the kind of luck that you you pray for but uh, yeah, the, the money really didn't. The money didn't affect me at all uh, back then. I, I wasn't driven by the money at all. You're just, you're just. All you want to do is be on the grid. Mm. That's that's the one aim you have. Uh, and once you're on the grid, then you you would just want to try and stay on the F1 grid for as long as possible because it's it, it's it's all you know and it's all you want to do. I take it when you did the sums you realised that probably this wasn't the path that Rowan or Lottie are going to go down. <laughs> so, um, Being your son and daughter, for those who don't know. I mean, would they yeah. ever go into F1? Have they ever asked you that? Have they ever said, come on, Daddy, stump up the five mil? Not, not yet. I mean, it's so cute the other day. So I, I was explaining to, to Rowan, my, my son, and he's nine years old. Um, he's, he's a super bright kid. And, um, you know, my gift to him will be his education and and like it will be for, for my daughter, Charlotte, Lottie, we call her. Um, it is a different route. It's a different way. You know, my, my dad gave me the gift of go-karting and, you know, it was it was cheaper back then. But I, I guess once you've done something so to the nth degree that you start seeing the you start seeing the negativity around it as well. Well, I certainly did. Um, you know, well, like I've just told you that story, how I met that manager from out of the blue. It was a one of those rare good luck stories. And for the few good luck stories, there are hundreds and hundreds of unlucky drivers that never will step foot in a cart or car ever again. Um, far more fail than succeed. And I think knowing how lucky I was and, and other drivers that make it onto the grid, uh, it, it, it's not a great investment, just put it that way. It's, uh, the odds are certainly against you. Yeah. And um, I, I, yeah, I just think with the contacts that I have and, and, and if, I can, if I can give that a good education to my children, um, if they wanted to get into motor racing, or, or anything to do in the, in the motor industry, then, you know, I, I have contacts now and um, I'm a known name and, and, and the two combined will certainly give a, not maybe the same peak money that I was 
that I've been lucky enough to, uh, to, to come by in my career, but, but certainly more longevity. Because that's one thing people don't understand with racing drivers as well. It's, it's great, or any sports person for that matter, it's great while you're, while you're earning the money, while you're at the top of your game, but it's a very short-lived window. And you've got to be wise in how you spend your money as well, how you invest your money. Um, so, yeah, that, that's this is my view. Um, it's not necessarily the right way, but it's the way that I feel like I can give something back to my kids. I, you know, to, to get them into racing is, if they ask me to do it, you can't say no. Um, I've heard some and stories like that from drivers whose, you know, whose parents have said you know, they were drivers themselves and parents have said absolutely not on, on no way you're ever going to step foot in a car. Um, and they feel really deprived and hurt by that. So I think if, if there was the, it, when the question comes, you know, of course, of course you, you, you can't say no, but at the moment, Luckily, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> I haven't had the, I want to be a Formula 1 driver. I'm nine now. You were doing this when you were eight. I want to be, get doing this properly. But, get cracking but he, yeah. they, do, they do want to, and he has been, you know, my daughter's still a bit too young. I started when I was eight. And, you know, she, if, if Lottie wants to have a go one day in a car, you know, of course, I'd be weirder. I might be more up for her having a go than my son. It just, because it's cool, a girl doing karting is, I just think, is way cooler. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and weirdly, she'd probably have more, uh, like a, a, a bigger chance to make it all the way. So uh, you know, because it's we need we need females in racing, and uh, you know whether you're a mechanic, an engineer, or a driver, we we need more females in racing. And um, yeah, that would be that would be cool to see. But uh, I'd be more, I'd almost be more encouraging of that. Than, than I would be with my son but he has had a few goes he loves it of course um and it was so cute the other day so I was telling him this story about just laying down the facts really because he's like I say he's a bright lad and laying down the facts that uh, this is what xyz costs and um he thought about it a while and I thought ah, oh, it's I hope I haven't kind of broken his heart and it, it, you know shattered any dreams that he might have had and then he, he he thought about it and said daddy you know when I went to um when I, when I went to Wilton Mill karting with because um when I was away Carrie my wife took him karting and he said you know when I went to Wilton Mill karting and and it was it was 20 or 30 pounds I can't remember what it was to have a, a little go on the small track I said yeah he went well um would it be okay if it, it if I could pay to go myself next time. <laughs> if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You what? How's he going to afford that? Well, because he gets pocket money, doesn't he? And he's a saver. And um, so he, he's worked out that he's got enough money to pay oh, for a, a go. So cute. So, yeah, I said, of course, look, <laughs> we can, doing it for fun, absolutely. Doing it with a vision to get into Formula One, it's, yeah. it, it's massive money these days, unfortunately. Yeah. Fuel is clearly crucial in motorsport, and Esso continue to provide the very best to maximise performance. That's why they've come up with Esso Synergy Supreme Plus 99 to reduce knock-related performance loss whilst keeping elite engines firing on all cylinders. But it's not just about what fuel you're using, the amount is also paramount. I caught up with former Formula One driver Kareen Chandok to find out just how important fuel is to both qualifying and the race. Now, Kareen, the 1980s were famous for fuel management. It's not something we see so much in races now. When is it significant and how much of a challenge is it for the drivers? Yeah, you're right, Nats. Back in the 80s, you know, the drivers had to really control the amount of fuel they used with a boost, whereas nowadays, modern technology with the hybrids, um, you know, they've got so much software that it controls a lot of it. It controls the amount of fuel versus the electric energy the, the cars use. But there's still a lot of decision making around it, uh, especially when you talk about qualifying. You know, how much fuel do you put in the car? Do you plan to do one lap or three laps or five laps? You know, some circuits we know, uh, especially the newer circuits where you've got fresh asphalt, do take a number of laps for you to get the best out of the tires. So, uh, the drivers do have to factor it in. The weight of the fuel makes a difference to performance. Ultimately, you know, when, when you set the cars up, they're all done with zero fuel in it and at an equal. So therefore, if you're going to put two or three laps more fuel, that could cost you a tenth or two in lap time, which you've got to make up. So there is a massive trade-off in those instances for qualifying. I think the other thing that happens is the engines, some are more economical than others. You know, you've got four manufacturers today in F1. And an engine that's more economical means that the, that team or those drivers can start the race with less fuel. And that means that they're going to have an advantage for the entire race because as the fuel load comes down in both cars, eventually it'll equalize. But for the most part, they will have an advantage of a tenth, two tenths, sometimes even three tenths if it's, you know, a significant difference. So... Certainly, the amount of fuel you put in the car has a, a direct relationship to the end performance. And how much 
do the drivers have a say in this decision? Because I'm thinking about Valtteri Bottas in Portugal. I spoke to him after quali and Lewis had had the opportunity because of the fuel load to take three laps and ultimately that he gained pole position. So there was a big difference between ultimately one and three laps in Q3. Well, on that occasion, Valtteri made the decision. I think where the drivers end up making the decision is when you get a point where the tires and the feel of the tires become critical, and that is qualifying. So, you know, on that occasion, Valtteri felt that he could just go out and do one lap and get the peak performance out of it. Um, it turned out to be the wrong approach. Lewis put a bit more fuel on board and then did his best lap on his third lap, and that turned out to be the right approach. So, certainly on that occasion, and in other similar occasions, the drivers will certainly have an influence as to how much fuel goes in the car. Fascinating stuff. Kareem, thank you very much. Unlock an extra level in your engine with Esso's new Synergy Supreme Plus 99. With its high octane and zero ethanol, not currently available in Scotland, Teesside and Cornwall, along with its specific additives, it can help clean and protect your engine. For engines designed for higher octane fuel, it will help to keep your engine performing at the level it was designed to and can give you a performance boost. So in terms of your um, big breakthrough, would you say that it was, was that test drive that you got with BAR? Was that the first kind of moment that you thought, hello, we're on here? That was what, back in 2001? Yeah, so I'd done the call in... I'd done Carl in F3 in 2001. And uh, yeah, of course, at that point, your, you know, your name's in the, back then, your name's in the magazines. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, you know, you, you, you're spotted by maybe a few F1 teams and um, BAR, luckily, were it was one of those teams that um, my manager was in contact with and and yeah, they had seen me win the Formula Ford Festival and a few big wins in Formula Three and second in the championship to Takuma Sato in my first year and and had the most pole positions in the year. And so it was, it was a good rookie season, definitely. Um, with a view to do a second season, but then the opportunity came up to become a, so a BAR young driver and they already had they already had one driver there, so they were starting to try to build up their repertoire of young drivers and um, because testing was was big back then you know it was unlike today it was a proper job it was it was they, they had a full on test team they had testing trucks they had testing cars um, a whole complete different was that was that do you think that was a better approach honestly no it was great for me but honestly no it was it was a a huge outlay for the teams they had the money back then there, there was more money around back then uh, than there is today you know with the the uh, you know, the tobacco sponsorship and things it was there's a lot of money floating around um and uh, so the, the sport was healthy definitely um although oh, the tobacco. I was going to say, apart from the whole image, but uh, at different times, though, you know, you have to you have to imagine it's different times. And, you know, I've I've grown up despising smoking. I'd never smoked and can't stand it myself. But, yeah, it's um, the sport in general really benefited from it. And, um, yeah, it, uh, 
it's different times today, of course, but um, it's, it's harder to find the money. Um, but yeah, the, the act has certainly been uh, cleaned up. But um, what was your question again? I can't even remember. Breakthrough. <laughs> and then you <laughs> didn't get a regular drive until Super Guri days. Is that right? Yeah, but yeah, so the testing, sorry, yeah, so, so the testing was, went on for a couple of years, I think five yeah. years of test driving, and um, I learned so much. You would test alongside the race drivers, like Jacques Villeneuve, Olivier Panis, Jensen Button. Oh. You would be with these guys. They would come from the race weekend and start testing with you, and uh, so you would get a complete direct comparison of, uh, of your performance versus them, and, yeah. and um, so this, this went on, like I say, for a couple of years, and the learning curve was 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 great, but um, and it might have been a mistake, but I, did, I wasn't racing at that time. Me and my manager decided to start, well, for me to start earning money out of it, to stop spending money uh, doing the, the Formula 3 again for another season and felt we'd had a good enough season to warrant getting into Formula 1, albeit in a test driving role, and with a view to impress them enough in the testing that, you know, you try and get spotted by either another team or to get promoted by the team you're driving with. A little bit naive, perhaps, at looking back at it. But and I should have, I should have carried on. I should have carried on racing uh, because when I finally, yeah, sorry, because when I finally got the chance with Super Guri, I did feel a little bit race rusty. I had the speed, but I was race rusty. Um, you know, five years without any racing. But that's what I was going to say as well. If racing's in your DNA, you must have been getting frustrated as well. Not just race rusty, but like you must have been kind of chomping at the bit for competition. Yeah, well, I mean, I had the competition in in testing. That was my, the lap times was my competition. So every time I went testing, I will just basically be trying to match the race driver's times and, and give good feedback on on how the car was performing and the new upgrades that were coming along and that to be honest as well that analytical side of my brain really kicked in and, and fell in love with the rapid advancements in Formula One how every time we went testing there was something new on the car uh, we were in the middle of a massive tyre war as well between Michelin and Bridgestone and they're, they're the best tyres that, that there's ever been in Formula One albeit they were groove tyres they were the best tyres we've ever had um, because that competition between the two huge manufacturers, money, no object, pretty much money, no object, um, drove them to such heights using chemicals in their tyres that you're not allowed to use today, produced some epic performances from the mechanical grip of the tyre. And every time you went testing, uh, you, you just found performance in the tyre. You did most of your setup work around the tyre. And this is why part of the reason why Alonso, Renault and Michelin was such a strong, it has had such a strong package because he pretty much just tailor made the tyre to the car and his driving style um, with that French connection, of course, with the team and that rapport they had and the drive of Alonso, both and on and off the track. That's where the performance was being found. Then you had Schumacher at Ferrari with Bridgestone the same process was going on there with Ross Braun, Jean Tate. Imagine, and they could literally go to the tyre manufacturer and go, we want this, this and this to happen. We've got this balance with our car. Look at what it's doing. And the tyre manufacturer would go away, 
bosh out about five or six new compounds and constructions, go to the next test pretty much two or three weeks later, and you would find half a second a lap from tyres with a completely different balance to your car. It was amazing. Honestly, uh, it spoiled us drivers that were around in those times. So people like Robert Kubica, Alex Wirtz, De La Rosa, myself, um, to a lesser extent, Vettel, I think it was there a little bit later, but it really spoiled us in what we assume a tyre manufacturer can do today because it, it will never be the same again. At least that's what they tell me, it'll never be the same again. And even those brands that were in there at that time, they can't make tyres like that today. Um, it, yeah, it was, it was money, no object. So that was cool. And I loved that. And you can probably hear about how excited I'm getting about talking about tyres. It's I, I sad, feel, but... Not sad. <laughs> actually got tyres for the first time in my... Yeah. <laughs> so, so it, 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 yeah, it... it it really captivated me and that yeah and I honestly I, I didn't really miss the racing so um interesting I never thought you were gonna want, yeah but now looking back at it, it, it I only really got back into my racing once I got back in but once I started doing sports cars because um even in even leaving so karting was the most brutal kind of wheel-to-wheel racing you'll ever have as a driver there's no aero, there's no turbulent air coming off the, the cart. So it's, it's nose to tail the whole time. And, um, you know, it's, it's really cutthroat with everybody in similar equipment and 60 of you turn up over one weekend and whittle down to 30 for the race. And um, so, you know, it, it's, it, it's smaller margins and it was brutal wheel-to-wheel racing. And going to Formula Ford was like a slower version of that still no aero on the cars but then when you went to formula three i felt like racing changed and it changed forever for me um and then when you got to formula one it was even harder to race wheel to wheel because the aero effect was was in a way ruining the racing you couldn't get so close to each other anymore um when i went to sports cars it felt like i kind of racing had returned in a way so that that's in a in a roundabout way that's why i don't think i really missed the racing as much because it for me it never really felt like elbows out you know cutthroat racing anymore it was much more chilled than than what i grew up doing in karting and i think you you could ask any any f1 driver the same question today and they'll all have the same answer really yeah because it's you just got this nice safety net around you all the time this this kind of buffer of of turbulent air that you know the guy behind can't get close to and and it you know it's it slows down that that um the the racing element in a way which is a shame um you know you only have to look at some of the races we've had this season and on the circuit where the aero is a is a bigger effect when the cars are going higher speed it's it's hard for them to 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 uh to race and you know luckily drs now helps them get closer and to overcome some of that deficit but when i did it we didn't have drs um we had normally aspirated engines so you couldn't even play with the with the power of the engine you had no battery to 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 use on a lap as well so you literally just had it was like a bigger version of a formula three car and um 
yeah, the race, I, I just felt the, the racing just was never the same as karting. So actually, um, I was going to ask you your preference between F1 and sports cars, but I think you've already answered it. Well, in terms of the racing, it was, yeah, you, you sports cars, although it was slower than, than F1, the lap time was slower. It, it's, um, you could enjoy getting stuck in a bit more and, um, yeah, I mean, it's we didn't have huge competition in terms of numbers on the grid in LMP1, but uh, so like the stuff I do today in LMP2, albeit it's a it's an amateur category, um, it's it's amazing racing. It's it makes you smile when you're in the car because it's again it's it's proper elbows out stuff. You got to be you got to be a little fighter in the car, and um, and and the driver has uh, quite a big a uh, big effect on on how you can work your way through through the pack or not so um but you know it's, it's all it's all different drivers excel in different cars and, and 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 enjoy uh driving different cars obviously formula one is the ultimate in terms of speed and the feel the plushness of the car it's they're second to none but um i got high hopes for the future of formula one and that the new regulations hopefully we'll see a the drivers be able to push each other a bit closer at least like all it needs to be is like we see in f2 for example a bit more ground effects from the car the wings have less effect and then it opens up uh, the chance to follow each other closer and i often say to someone like damon or johnny or, or paul in the in the office at, uh, at sky when we're watching one of the the F2 races, imagine if Formula 1 could be like this. Imagine if they were all F1 drivers and they're all in F1 cars right now and it looked like that, nose to tail and, you know, just close the pack up a bit more and, and allow them a chance to actually outbreak each other instead of just relying on another DRS pass. It would be so cool and hopefully that's, that's something that will be worked on in the future. But um, so that's why, I, that's why I didn't, I guess it's why I didn't really feel so robbed of racing um so you know i i just i got sucked into the test driver role and 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 enjoyed the job i did there and and that still continues today working with mercedes on the simulator i can apply that same that same part of my brain that i don't know i'm a perfectionist i like to things to always be improved i'm never happy with leaving things as they are I'll, I'll always fiddle and try and improve something and think about a better way something can be done so um i think that's one of my strengths as a development test driver yeah horses for courses in the pink and bows want to support you in whatever way we can during these uncertain and constantly evolving times so we're giving away more noise cancelling headphones to bring some added calm to your life to win the headphones, just tag in the three friends you're most looking forward to reconnecting with once lockdown is fully lifted. Always include the hashtag Bose and those headphones could be yours. Good luck and stay connected. Hey, look, talking of getting sucked in, can you just recount Canada 2007 for me? Because I remember going back to Canada with you a few years later and you touched on the story and I didn't believe it. I didn't believe that this little animal, groundhog, was it? Yeah. Was it a It was a groundhog. Yeah, 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 it was, yeah. That this little bugger could ruin your race. I mean, you couldn't write it. 
pains you to remember it every time anyone who doesn't know this story please share it with us um before we get started on that so groundhog canada it it always reminds always makes me laugh when crofty came out with the infamous comment in commentary yeah the uh, the groundhog an indigenous species to this man-made island (laughs) I can never think of a groundhog in Montreal now <laughs> without thinking of that. <laughs> Do you know what? I think you're one of the few. In fact, you're the only person I know who relentlessly takes the piss out of Crofty and he still loves you. Yeah, but it's, it's Crofty, mutual. You know? Crofty gives it a lot. He, he's not as good at taking it, but for some reason he takes it off. <laughs> and you... Just give him so much stick. But you <laughs> not that much. No, I can just, yeah, I, I don't know. We've always been like... I know, I know. We've always had, on air, we've just always had, well, it, it just clicked from the from the moment we started working with each other. It, it just clicked and, um, you know, it's a chemistry thing, isn't it? And, um, yeah, yeah. yeah we, we've got similar... Yeah. Yeah, good, good rapport and um, a good old Crofty. But, uh, yeah, that... that that day back in 2007 so it's my first full season in Formula One and um I came to Canada and all the usual process it did the circuit walk and it's mid-season at that point so you're fully into the groove and we'd started the season with the Super Guris basically the Honda from the year before and um so every race we did without any development we we were just losing time and it's funny, up until that point, I had never realised how, even though I'd been involved heavily in the development of cars and um, feeling the improvements, I'd never quite realised what would actually happen if you just stood still in development for a whole season. And it was almost like a case study at Super Guri, how you took this good car from the year before. Jensen had won uh, Hungary. You know, I mean, it wasn't the fastest car in the drive, but, you know, it was good enough to be up the sharp end. And uh, so we started the year and it was a kind of top 10, 12th, 13th place. It was, it was good enough for that kind of uh, good enough for that kind of result. Um, and by the time we'd got to Canada, we, we were fairly close to the back. And by the time we ended the season, we were we were last just to show that constant leapfrog effect you have in F1 of the development. So I'm, I'm pretty sure if we had gone back to the same circus like Melbourne, where we qualified 10th and 11th, me and Sato, uh, I'm pretty sure we would have been last and second to last on the grid if, you, if you'd gone back to Melbourne, if it was at the end of the year. Um, so, yeah, that, that rate of progress was just starting to slip by the time we, well, wasn't any progress. The, the, the car was starting to slip. In performance by the time we got to Canada so you know it, it was would have been a lucky result anyway to to get into the points and um, you know that's that's what we were always aiming for uh, and it was a, a, a really topsy-turvy kind of race it was a race where Robert Kubica had that huge smash up on the way down towards the hairpin and you know luckily he was able to 
walk away from that one massive crash obviously back in the days before the halo and and all the safety or extra safety that we have in the cars today and it brought out the safety car and there was another crash as well i think at some point and you know, real like i say real up and down race but um I found myself on a, on a I was doing a, a one stopper back in the days when you had refueling. So we started with the intention to just a one stop race once to refuel. And um, I found myself just before the pit stop running in third place. And um, so after the safety car, I could see, I think it was Nick Heidfeld, Lewis in front of me. And, uh, and I was running around in third for a couple of hours. Ralph Schumacher behind, who's on the same strategy as me in the Toyota. And I'd held him off the whole race. We were pretty much the same speed. And um, we're coming up to the back end of the circuit. I could see Lewis, because Heidfeld and Lewis had already stopped and they were pulling away on their newer tyres. Um, but I was just driving my own race, thinking, this is amazing. In third place, this is we're definitely on for some points here after I get my new tyres on and they do their second stop this it's looking good for maybe like a, a P5 or P6, definitely in the points. And um, it's just driving up to that chicane, the, the back end, is it turn, test my memory now, turn eight and nine, I think it is, the right, left, and um, you go under the bridge. And I, saw, I was just following Lewis's tracks. Uh, he was on the racing lines, just, just like normal. And I went into that corner and um, didn't think, think anything of it. And it kind of locked the inside front, just going in. I thought, ah, tyres getting old and got to think, you know, brake carefully going into the next hairpin because that was a close one. He ran a bit wide in the chicane. So definitely take more margin when you get to the hairpin. Now, Ralph is pretty close and can't mess this braking zone up because I'm a bit under threat now. I can't throw away this position. And, uh, and it locked up massively into the hairpin. I thought, this... This, this, this isn't right. I've got a puncture or something. Something. I didn't even think I had damage on the car. I thought something, maybe suspension or something. I couldn't work it out. And uh, so, right, coming up to the back straight, if I break and and it's a, I'm going to definitely take even more margin now. And if I break and I, it doesn't feel right, I, there's something wrong. The car's unsafe, and I'm just I just have to box. But it should be all right. It should be fine. Okay, just just throw the brake balance rearward. It's, it's, it's get back on you know get back on into it and just find the rhythm again and I came into that chicane now going even higher speed and both fronts as soon as I touched the brake pedal both fronts is locked up and I couldn't control the car I couldn't even make the corner like, oh god yeah god god something's broken it and I just found myself coming into the pits and I thought it was I had to bail come into the pits and uh then I was straight on the radio oh, I'm in the pits I'm in the pits <laughs> The team weren't expecting it at all. And uh, and that obviously it was an absolute shambles. It felt so bad for the team. And But I only had a few corners to think. I was trying to process it all. And I didn't want to come into the pits. I just thought I kept missing my braking zone. And But then once it locked up and sailed off into the into the pits, I thought, no, I'll, I'll be out of the race because there's, some, there's something broken on the car, clearly. But at least I've made it into the pits and I'm safe. And uh, so I stopped and they all came pouring out the garage and there's chaos. They're running around and throwing things on the tyres and they look at what? And I said, there's something broken on the car. This is, it keep locking up everywhere. Something's broken. And uh, well, they could see straight away what I couldn't see 
is that half of my front wing was missing on one side and uh, on the main element, a huge chunk missing out the front wing. All the barge boards on the right hand side of the car gone, blood all over the car and a kind of mangled poor old groundhog in the right hand radiator stinking and this is hot in there so and I just I had no idea what was going on. I saw the front the, the nose come off and the new one going on I thought what is going on <laughs> why are they changing the nose I had no idea because it didn't feel a thing when it and so it must have this groundhog must have at that point bounced out onto the track literally after Lewis had gone by or maybe it had been on the other side of the track and it was trying to run back to safety on the other. Either way, I never saw it because it must have been in the shadow of the bridge. I, I never saw it, never felt it. It was the weirdest thing. It was just like some phantom had come along and ruined my car. Um, and I love animals. And I just, you know, I'm, whenever you have a bit of roadkill out on the track, it's, yeah, I, it's, it's not nice. And uh, I, I don't like that. But um yeah, that was it. It ruined my race and uh, put me out of the points. And even when they put the new nose on the car and a new set of tyres and the car wasn't the same because it was pulling to one side with just that bargeboard area gone. They're so powerful mm. that it was uh, erased. The chance of scoring points has gone. And actually, even more hurtful is that Sato was able to make headway on his fresher tyres and, and get past, I think, Rosberg and Alonso even, uh, on his way up there's no way I could my car was just so badly damaged I was quicker than Rosberg but I could it just wasn't quite enough to uh, to make any kind of move to get close enough so um, yeah it's just super gutting but uh, that was really my best chance ever in Formula 1 of scoring points so a couple of 11th places to my name and that was uh, that was it so damn it god damn yeah. it Groundhog. Um, yeah, it kind of gives a whole new meaning. Indigenous to species, this man-made island. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? <laughs> if it hadn't been so mangled, you could have stuffed it and sort of framed it on the wall. It would have been a mm. <laughs> too much. Too yeah, much. the team, the team did the team did buy me some uh, kind of you know like the little fluffy toys and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> little kids' toys of groundhogs. And, I bet they yeah, did. I kept 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 that. Um, obviously, Same. your role at Sky is 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 a vital one and you're obviously a very popular member of the team. One of the reasons that I think you add so much value is because of your longstanding relationship with Mercedes and you're able to give a kind of level of insight without ever being indiscreet or giving away anything that you shouldn't, but you, you're able to show us why they are as good as they are. And from the inside looking out and then from the outside looking in, what is it about this current setup at Mercedes that means they are multiple world champions and they just keep getting, I mean, I say this having just seen that most calamitous of double stacking pit stops. That was weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that to one side, they are formidable. We'll talk, we can talk about that in a minute, but what is the work ethic like there? What is, what's the mindset like there? Why are they so good? Well, I mean, yeah, you, you say my long-standing relationship with Mercedes, but it's, I, I say Brackley, the team in Brackley, because I've seen it change so many 
times over the years since 2002. So when I started working properly with the with the team, and um, even in that 2007 season with Superguri, I was I was still I was there because of BAR Honda. So uh, you know I was still it, it was actually the the team in Brackley that wanted me in the car in the Superguri. So it wasn't Superguri that that wanted me there. It was Brackley. So that was my that was where my kind of loyalties lay would lay and. Um, 2008 was a bit different. I don't actually think Super Guru was ever supposed to happen in 2008 at all, but somehow it, it carried on going. Um, some political stuff was going on. I it was it was over my head at the time, but uh, yeah, I don't. It was really touch and go whether Super Guru even went to Melbourne that in 2008, but certainly in 2007 I was there because of my my connection with with Brackley so I've seen it change so much over the years and it's always been a good team um always strong personnel many of who still remain at the team at Mercedes today left over from those early days I mean to name a few you got Andrew Shovlin uh James Vowles uh Ron Meadows and yeah so they you know, those guys were around in in my time um, I'm sure you know sorry Key names. Big names, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously they, well, Ron was always team manager, um, race team manager. And, but yeah, James was a like junior strategist, um, young engineer at the time when I first joined the team. And, and so was Andrew Shovelin. He was on the test team, as a test team engineer. And uh, yeah, I was, I was, young test driver so um i worked with those guys since 2002 three onwards so um and many of them have gone on to other teams as well so they're still in the industry but uh working with other teams so it's been fascinating you know nats watching different team bosses come and go um whether it was craig pollock david richards nick fry ross braun we've seen so many people come and go and they've all got their own style their own touch their own way of of uh, you know bonding the team and 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 yeah trying to get the best out of the personnel that work there it's, it's been really interesting and but the, for me the biggest change really was in that that year from 2008 to 2009 um, you know that fairy tale year when it went from Honda at the end of Honda. So I went back to Honda as a test driver after Super Guru folded. I, I continued to do my work there. Um, yeah, they took me back on as, as reserve and test driver. And um, I, yeah, it, we had a feeling that something wasn't quite right by the end of the year. And um, I was actually on the phone a lot to James Vowles when in, in right at the uh, the latter stages of Honda when just before they pulled out because we could sense something wasn't right. So there's a lot of discussion going on and it didn't seem, it didn't seem positive at all going for the next season. And, um, you know, so many people's jobs and livelihood on, on the, on, on, on the cusp at the end of 2008, it was, it was honestly, it was horrible myself included, you know, it's horrible to suddenly find yourself without any future work. And, you know, as a, as a contractor, as drivers are, you you're always looking around and, and Christmas time especially is a real horrible period it can be 
because you're out of contracts quite usually and, and you're looking for the next gig to come along. And, you know, it's, it's a blessing if you can find a two or three year deal. That's amazing for a, for a driver. Um, you know, usually it's just a one year deal. And so you usually get to the end of each year and you've got, you're looking for the next job to come along. So, yeah, I was sitting there with, with the, with the news that Honda were about to pull out and um, they, we knew that they were working on, on a good car as well for the 2009 season. Um, little did we know at the time, but they were, it was Honda's involvement uh, that came up with the, the double diffuser. Uh, it was their, it, it was their start, you know, back in Japan, I think someone had the idea and, uh, to work the regulations in that way. So they had this good car sitting there um, and then they pulled out. So, and, and we all know the story after that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that changed though, when Mercedes came on board as a, it was a, a customer team was brawn and um, that Mercedes went in the back a bit. And I think that was the time that was the time I saw the, the team change a lot when, when Ross was there. Um, it, it seemed like hey, there's some, some big cuts. The team went from, I think, almost a thousand strong to around 400 or just under. So huge cuts. And, uh, you know, it, it was desperate times. But somehow I think that it, it kind of it created this incredible fighting spirit, this real never give up attitude that I think honestly is still there today. Um, and I think it was a combination of things. It was, it was Ross's involvement. It was the team going through that dire time that just spurred them all on more than ever to hit the ground running when they had their chance again. Uh, Jensen as well. Um, Rubens, they, they had this new lease of life. I felt it and I, I just felt this incredible energy, like this Phoenix moment where they, it was just, there was no stopping them. There was no stopping them. Um, and it was a great story, great to be a part of it. And, uh, and we could just see the numbers from the new, the new car. Um, honestly, the, the engine made a difference as well. Um, I think, it's just the way the regulations were back then. I think Honda were per perhaps a bit conservative with their engine um, because everybody needed to get their homologation in quite early. I remember this this period where they had to homologate the engine. You couldn't touch it. There was this there was this freeze, and I think I think Honda they had a great V10 engine. I think with the V8 they were they were a bit down on power, um, so. Just that, like I say, that combination of everything coming together, engine, new car, revived team, saved team. That was the biggest turnaround that, I, that I've ever witnessed in Formula One. And um, yeah, and it, and it stayed strong ever since, really. So yeah, they're, they're, and then they were able to grow the team again. Once Mercedes came in properly and they weren't a customer team anymore, uh, then, it, then it just it snowballed. Um, and Toto coming along as well, of course, he worked with Ross for a while and he, he you know, he could tell he got his eye in. Um, but that team, that team 
would do anything for Toto now. They, if, if he says jump, they'll jump. They, they, they do anything for him. They love it. Absolutely love him there. Yeah, you can definitely see that. Okay, bringing it up to the here and now. We've got one race left to go this season. It's been bonkers, hasn't it? <laughs> I can't believe we've got through as many races as we have. Um, and there have been so many incredible highlights, so many incredible moments that actually probably take quite a long time to think back over, reflect on through the Christmas period. Um, but for you, what's really stood out this season? Um, I, I think the, the first came into my head there when you say what's really stood out is it's, it's Lewis. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I, I, I try to stay, like I say, I, I try to, I want to stay unbiased all the time. I do, I honestly have no favorite drivers. Um, oh, I do. And it's, and it's a difference between, and, and I can split it between my favorite, say, like a, a, a driver I admire their driving ability, a driver I admire for the human being that they are. Yes, yes, yes. So I, I can, I can, and, and separate the two. Yeah, for me, I can separate it, it quite clearly, but I, I can really see people's talents in the car clearly. Um, and I, I just think, yeah, as soon as you said who, who this year has been about Lewis, basically. Um, I think on and off the track, yeah. he's really left his mark. Um, I've seen him grow over the years and I think now we're looking at you're looking at such a such a class act um, that it's it's hard for it's hard it's hard for people to imagine what it takes to be such a polished racing driver to make such few mistakes to always be on your a game or as often as you can it's incredibly hard to always have the target on your back um, and that's something that Mercedes as a team have managed to to carry with them as well. Um, but yeah, as soon as you said who who stands out or what stands out for me, it, it, it's Lewis. You know that equaling Michael's record, setting new records himself. Um, you know, standing up for what he believes in in life. Um, you, you know, whether you're a fan or not, you have you have to find it somewhere in you to admire what what he's achieved and what what he's done is it's impressive and it doesn't matter about the car or not and it's you see other drivers making mistakes here and there and they're not always on on their a game but this year has been remarkable from his side and and really he's set the the benchmark um in in as a driver myself still actively racing he, it pains me to say it, but God, I'm jealous of what he can do in a car. <laughs> it's, it's, and, and, you know, I, I shouldn't feel jealous because, because of who he is, what he's achieved. But, uh, and I definitely wouldn't be alone. I don't mind admitting that. I'm, I wouldn't be alone in admitting that. Drivers know what they're looking at. Yeah, very special indeed. Well, look, Anne, honestly, I thought I knew a lot about you, but actually, after the last hour or so of chatting, I know so much more. <laughs> <laughs> I 
a deeper, greater respect for you than ever before. You've um, you've Aww. had a career and it continues that way. And I know that I remember you telling me about your dad being so immensely proud of the broadcaster you've become, because that's kind of surprised a few people, including yourself, hasn't it? You didn't expect it. Has, it has. Really? No, you've never expected it. Niche. You've, you know, you found an ability to communicate, which... I think a lot of people love they love the way you talk and explain things and you do it in a really natural way and you've done exactly the podcast as well so really grateful for your time and you've managed no, it's been good fun you killed some of our isolation woes in this hotel yeah Is it, it must be dinner time now <laughs> I've, just, I've just had lunch <laughs> room service yeah <laughs> last act Anthony Davidson thank you very much Ant and I could talk the hind legs off a donkey, couldn't we? I loved our chat. Thank you so much, Ant. It was a great way to spend our lockdown time whilst in our hotel in Abu Dhabi in different rooms via Zoom. The wonders of modern communication. Right, loads more great guests on the way on In The Pink. And don't forget, keep your suggestions for future guests coming in because that will keep you in with a chance of winning some Bose goodies. All you have to do, tag a couple of mates in on my Instagram page and your suggestions as to who you want to hear from with the hashtag Bose. Well, thank you so much for your company and I will be back again next week with another great guest here on In The Pink. But until then, take care, stay safe and stay connected. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 